When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! And welcome to the Turning Point edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm joined by Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello. And because Kathy O'Neill is on book tour, by popular demand, we feature the return of... Hi, it's Lynette. Hi. I'm very excited to be here and to hear that I had a popular demand. Thank you. Lynette <laughs> Lopez, for- ladies and gentlemen. Hi. The senior finance correspondent at Business Insider, the host of, what's your podcast? It's called Hard Pass. It's called P- Hard Pass, and it's much shorter than Slate Money, so you much can squeeze short. it in between episodes of Slate Money. Right. Like, just in case you only want six minutes of me screaming in your ear, this is perfect for you. And the tagline is rejecting the business of everyday life. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of shade involved. We are going to be talking about the big macro news of the week. We try, I try and avoid macro, but this one you can't really avoid because there was this massive census report. And hey, guys, you're really... You, you're rich. You're, you, your wealth went up. You're amazing. Well done. Congratulations. Well done, you, for being so awesome and getting richer. Um, we are also going to talk about a mega merger. There's a huge acquisition of Monsanto. You probably hate Monsanto. It seems to be the very sort of bien pensant thing to do is to hate Monsanto. They are being bought for like $56 billion by Bayer. Um but first, we are going to talk about point. <laughs> this is 
<laughs> this was the, the the hot topic on on econ and finance Twitter. This was like, and I am not the best econ finance Twitter person. So you guys had to inform me that this was going on, and then I was like, oh, I, this has gone too far for me to jump in right now. <laughs> there were there were like a lot of reasons I think that this blew up. But Felix, tell, tell so, us what point is. So and then it we'll... all be- it all began. So point has existed for a while, but of course no one noticed it because there have been a million different corporations and companies trying to do this kind of thing for a while and they all fail and it's no big deal until one day Andreessen Horowitz comes along dun, 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 and there's this weird there's this weird um, what do you call it sort of knee jerk ripple effect which happens every time Andreessen Horowitz announces an investment in a new company that suddenly everyone is talking about that company just by dint of an Andreessen Horowitz blog post well it's like the it's it, like the finance equivalent of if like Pharrell like says hey this artist is great like all yeah, of a sudden it's like, never... Con- it's like Kanye cussing at you or Rihanna giving you the side eye. Exactly. You are important. So if, if Andreessen Horowitz says, yo, check this out, everyone says, okay, let's check this out. And then, so that's what basically so, finance so now, Twitter did. So then finance Twitter spent basically two or three days looking at the Andreessen Horowitz blog post, combing the points.com website, trying to work out what on earth was, is it, a, is it um, preferred stock? Is it like... A zero coupon loan with wait, wait, you've attached. got to explain what yeah, it we, actually but does. We, but let's try and yeah. let's try and explain it first of all in the terms which Anderson Horowitz uses to explain it, well, which is basically you get to sell equity in your house. Yeah. So instead of taking out a home equity loan, you can sell a share of your equity to Point, and then ten years later, you pay them back what they gave you, or that you pay them back plus a percentage, uh, or sorry. One, two, three. Ten years later, you pay them back a percentage of whatever your house appreciated. And that's where they make their money. And so this is the first weird thing is that normally when you sell equity, you get a bunch of money and there's no obligation for you to pay back anything to anyone ever. Equity by its nature is a permanent thing. Whereas this is not a permanent thing. This is a very finite thing. It ends after a 10 year and after 10 years, you need to pay the money back. And not only do you need to pay the money back, you need to pay back the money plus a whole bunch of extra money according to how much your home has increased in value. Uh, you know, yeah, there's just a lot of ifs going on here. And when I read things like this, I'm like, okay, how are we going to get screwed doing this? Like, how? How? I mean, when Lou Ranieri created the mortgage bond, he didn't know that we were going to chop it up all nasty and fly it around the world. What are we? How are we going to chop this up nasty? Well, so, 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 what's so happening? It's, it's already chopped up nasty. One of the... So, okay, so there's this two-sided market. Like, as the, re- the reason why Point looks like it might be a successful investment from the point of view of Andrews and Horowitz is that you have demand on both sides. On the one hand, you have people mostly trying to buy houses. And as we New Yorkers know, and as people in Silicon Valley know, and as other people know... Buying houses, houses are expensive and you don't it costs get a lot to of buy money. Well, so wait, I saw, I clarify this and they're not doing, they're only doing current homeowners right now. They are not doing any home sales. I asked them about this because this was one of the things, it, the Andreessen Horowitz the, uh, post made it sound like they might be doing new purchases. Um, and right now that's not their goal at all. Yeah, it's and, only and, taking equity out of a house right, that well, you currently own. And, huh. so, and so that's, so that's one of the weird things because... You know, cash out refi is what could possibly go wrong if anyone lived through the financial no, crisis. Why does this keep happening? Um, but yeah, the the idea of doing something with your house 
which puts a financial obligation on you, but you get a bunch of cash up front. The kind of people who take that offer weirdly tend to find themselves in sort of hot water down the road. Yeah. So the reason I, this caught my my but but let's okay. but before we keep and analyze it, yeah. let's just finish explaining yeah. what the hell this thing is first yeah. because it's complicated. Because I am still only eighty percent sure. Well, so it's so it's designed to. Like, let's take a million-dollar house, and I'm not picking that just because it's a round number. I'm also picking that because it's what's known as super prime. The people who buy million-dollar houses tend to be quite rich, mm-hmm. and Point doesn't like taking credit risk, and it reckons that if it's essentially lending money to someone with, who can afford a million-dollar house, and they're much more likely to get their money back after the end of 10 years. Unless they're 50 cents. So, <laughs> or unless they're 50 cents. So you, you have your million-dollar house, and you sell 10% of it to Point for $100,000. So you get $100,000 in cash, minus like their 3% fee and all the rest of it. But you get 100000 in cash. And then you don't need to pay any kind of interest payments on that $100,000. It's not a loan in that sense. If you sell your house, then 20% of the price appreciation of your house goes to Point plus the original $100,000. So the example they give on their blog is that if you sell it for $1.2 million, then the appreciation is $200,000. 20% of that is $40,000. So you pay back $40,000 plus $100,000 is $140,000. What they don't do is say, well, like, what happens if it goes up to $2 million? In that case, 20% 20% of the appreciation is $200,000. You have to pay back $300,000, which is three times yep. the cash you got out. So there's a flip side to this, too, which is that if your house loses value... You yeah. still need to pay back $100,000. Well, well, no, so Point actually takes some of the loss. They, 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 will, they will take some... Uh, they, they, if, you, if your house de- depreciates, Point will take some of those losses... Eventually, but only if, after a certain amount. What kind of degenerate point. gambler? But then after, but then after that, um, if you and I asked them about this, it seems like if your house goes totally underwater, their their investment zeroes out. So they're not going to try and ring you for money if your house is one hundred percent underwater. That's oh, kind. That is that. That's you least, mean if the value of your house is zero, if your equity is zero, essentially. Like so, if your more your first mortgage on the house is zero, uh, is is more than whatever equity you have left. Right, um, because basically they're a second mortgage. Yeah, in a lot of ways. So they are they're, they're a gussied up second mortgage. Yeah. Well, in some... I don't understand why anyone would want this. Well, okay. So, so, right, wait, so wait, wait, wait. Stop. So the, stop. I, stop. Verlaine yeah, wants yeah. to say something. Yeah. Are they a bank? Like this? I just need a oh. word. Like, what are they? They're a, okay. All right. Point is essentially a lender. They are essentially a mortgage company. They are lending money to you, but they're doing it on weird terms, which we're not used to yet. Yeah. I do think that, or the, hopefully ever, the, maybe never. It, I, to give them like some credit as like why this might be socially useful, I do think the fact that they are willing to accept some losses in the case that your house declines in value, it does distinguish it somewhat from an ordinary ordinary loan because again, like the the thing the defining thing about debt is you pay the interest and you pay eventually the principal no matter what or you're supposed to or you default. Whereas this, they share some of the downside. And the reason why this is a very bad way of implementing that is twofold. Yeah. Um, number one is simply that it's a second mortgage which gets layered on top of the main mortgage, which is the main obligation which people are worried about and which caused the financial crisis. And the way to fix this problem is to change mortgages and to do like, you know, shed of appreciation mortgages or something like that, not to faff around with second mortgages. Number I love two, the word faffing. Love number it. two, 
and this is equally important, um, the amount of downside that point shares in is tiny. If your house goes down a little bit, you still need to pay them back everything you paid them. The only thing yeah. you don't have to do is pay them back any interest on top. So I think, um, well, I mean, if it goes down enough, eventually you're not going to be paying back. But I think, I, I will say, I, I want to talk less about whether or not this is awful and a little bit about why I think there might be a market for it. Well, the Where, reason there's a market for it, well, and and this is clearly, this is something which I've noticed a lot with a lot of these kind of bank replacement startups, which you find in California, is that um, they're coming from the demand side. That what they do is they there's a bunch of hedge funds out there, and they're like, we want to invest in this, we want a way to get exposure to that. And there is definitely demand out there to get exposure to prime expensive real estate well, it's not also, something you can easily get exposure to if you're, if you're say a hedge fund I and th this is a way of doing that i think there's some they, they might also be zooming or zeroing in on a specific kind of consumer demand which is there's this little known population in, in the u.s that kind of is kind of called the paycheck to paycheck rich um it's essentially people who live in expensive suburbs prime real estate area for the school district but they can't quite afford they don't have much liquid assets they can't quite afford their lifestyle Typically, their house is where all their wealth is stored, um, but they have a hard time going. They are essentially living month to month often. This is a way for people in that position who are a surprisingly large demographic and may not have great credit scores um, to get cash without having to worry about monthly payments. And it gives them 10 years during which their house can appreciate. Maybe their kids go to get out of high school. Who knows that they can then, you know, just basically have some liquidity. Um, so I actually I can see who this might be developed for. And frankly, also, it's for people who just happen to have an expensive house and a low credit score. So maybe they moved there before it gentrified or something along and, those lines. But the, the other thing that happens is that it's based on this idea. It's sold on this idea yeah. that if your house is doubled in value, you're not really going to mind paying back a lot more than you borrowed because your house has doubled in value and you just made a million dollars. And in fact, come the day, it doesn't work like that because almost certainly any house which you're going to want to move into will have gone up in value as well. And you're going to want, you need to be on that property ladder with enough cash to be able to move into a new place. And the idea that you wind up having to have to pay this like really large check to essentially your second mortgage provider at exactly the same time that you're paying all of your brokerage fees to sell the old place and buy a new place and all the rest of it. That's actually when you need like the liquidity which you're losing. Yeah. I mean, I can almost imagine, I, I can also just sort of imagine a situation where someone takes out a second regular mortgage to pay off their point. That's clearly the design. Yeah. I mean, is that like, if you haven't sold your house after 10 years, yeah. the only way that you are realistically going to be able to pay point back yeah. and by the way they are the people telling you how much your house is worth um the only way that you can pay them back is by refinancing in some way and this is the thing if you, you two clowns can sit in here and come up with that stuff and all those all the downside of this they definitely thought about it but <laughs> it's like, no it's true you don't think that mark andreessen has already thought this through or maybe he's just really high off the kool-aid and he like really thinks this is great. I don't know. I remember that. that remember smart? that Mark Andreessen is also really high on Bitcoin Kool Aid. Oh yeah, that and, is well. That then yeah. Okay, and totally. There's this and this is this whole thing. Silicon Valley, and he's also oh, in. It's oh, by so the way, so annoying. He also invested in um, Stripe. Um, like, there's a bunch of Silicon Valley companies which 
have taken it upon themselves to decide that finance is broken and we are Silicon Valley and we can fix it. I think they just hate bankers. They I do think they just hate well, Wall Street bankers. Hate bankers. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they definitely do see an opportunity. They, they, there is a sense there, I think, that, you know, banking is somehow broken and it needs to be disrupted. Sorry, I want to make the, I have the scare quotes I up. But, and so word. that they're going to look at stuff. It's just that sometimes the products that come up, they're going to come up with products that have their own downsides. Uh, every every consumer product is That is just going to, seems like a lot of downsides, though, we just yeah. talked about. And they're going to look for, I, I think inherently, they're going to look for parts of the market that are not extremely well regulated. You know, so that's what you're and this find. is and this is also why so many of these um, Silicon Valley companies, like the the student loan refinances, um, the and the uh, all the people trying to like a firm who's trying to do other kind of like point to purchase lending, and these guys, they're all in some way or another doing in the lending business. And the reason is that, number one, there's a lot of spare money sloshing around, which people are happy to lend out for any kind of positive interest rate. Mm -hmm. And number two, lending by its nature is not particularly regulated, especially if you're doing it at sort of single-digit interest rates. Um, Unless it's a traditional mortgage, in which case you run into all sorts of things. So this is a way around that. And and if you're lending money to someone, you're providing them the money, and basically regulators are better than that than if you're borrowing money from someone, which is what you're doing if if you have a deposit account. There are very few fintech startups which take deposits. There are lots which will lend you money. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. Let's let's go macro, Jordan. All right. Fun time. I never get to go macro. Here. Let's go macro. It's sort of macro. So, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to oversell it, but some people were talking about how um, this week... The Census Bureau released what may have been the best economic news of the decade, maybe. So one of the best economic reports of the decade. Um, every year they come out with this thing about income and poverty and health insurance in the U.S. And for a long time, middle class incomes have sort of just been stagnating. Uh, the the key figure everyone looks for is like kind of median household income, right? Like what the absolute middle of the income distribution makes. This year, after after all this post-recession stagnation, the median household income went up 5.2%. Um, that's the fastest growth on record. It's uh, since they started uh, collecting this data in 1967. It is just, I mean, it's sort of a remarkable spurt after just waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's a real result. It's not just some weird statistical glitch. Yeah. So the reason why this... That's a healthy... It, so th- we got some questions, yeah. I think, on Twitter that... You know, I think there were good questions, which is how do you know this? We talk about random variability all the time on the show and in statistics. Like, how do we know this isn't just like, you know, some glitch of the survey? And there's one of the reasons, I mean, A, you know, they have standard errors, things like that. 
but also there's just like, there's a, there's a strong narrative for what happened here, which is we've we've last year, 2015, you know, unemployment was continued to drop at the same time we had this incredibly low inflation environment and wages picked up. At the same time, you also had minimum wage increases across a lot of the country, which, believe it or not, actually filter up to the middle class. There are a, a surprising amount of the middle wage workers are just like median, near the median in the income distribution. And so there are a lot of reasons to think something like this might have happened. It's just the strength of the results is, okay, finally, finally, the middle class is recovering close to or is you know it's the first time that we've seen any kind of an increase since 2007 and depending how you measure things it's we were kind of almost getting around or slightly above or slightly below where we were even in the late 90s early 2000s so we're rich yeah no i mean i <laughs> am a glass half empty kind of girl and i just we are we're still not where we were when bill clinton was president in the 90s okay. were green so i, I have, but we have iphones yeah <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, whatever. Well, so this is also so uh, my my Moneybox predecessor, uh, Matt Iglesias, has been harping on this this question of are we better off than where we were in the late '90s? And I think um, in some ways it's a little bit of a thicket. It's almost not worth getting into because you can literally change that result depending on what kind of inflation measure you use. And I don't think we're going to do a whole show devoted to the change CPI index and the I difference believe between. Matt Iglesias has, has already done, done that show. And yeah. if you want to go to oh, the my. weeds, yeah. you but can no. like literally so de- listen to it. So no. depe- but I will say the headline here is that depending on which type of inflation measure you can do, it's like we're either 2% below where we were in 1999 or maybe 3% above. We're kind of in the same ballpark, though. And so I think, yeah, there is this active question is like have that we really need to focus on is like have living standards for the middle class gotten better or worse since that time kind of generally. But what but, but, I mean, there's two questions here, right? Yeah. One is like, are we at an all time high for middle class living standards? And a lot of certainly doesn't feel uh, like it, it. depending on where you live and what color your skin is and various other things like there are different answers to that question. There's another question, though, which I think is equally germane, which is have middle class living standards improved a lot over the past 12 months? And the answer is clearly yes, they have. Uh, Well, yeah, I think that you're starting to see regardless. Yeah, you're seeing, you know, a turning point is that the economic recovery that for so long didn't feel like it was filtering down to the middle class now is. You know, not just in the unemployment numbers, but in bank in in terms of like people's bank accounts, in terms of their earnings, and that's that that's so important to just the way we kind of feel about ourselves, right, <laughs> as a country, about the direction of things, um, and people's positivity, and it just and you know these and, things and feed on each other. Universal, like it was every single income decile. It was like the twentieth percentile, the thirtieth percentile, the fortieth, the sixtieth, the seventieth. It was white people, black people. Do we have Hispanic to have the people. why do we feel so crappy then talk? Well, I mean, you feel crappy, Lynette, because you're a glass half empty kind of girl. Well, I'm also wearing all black today. Well, I think, you know, I think. I don't feel crappy. You don't feel crappy? Is it? I mean, I just feel so much angst as a millennial. You know, I'm worried about my social security. Am I even going to get it? All my brothers and sisters living in their parents' basement. When are they going to get out? Well, There's a you, lot of angst. Right. But, but that's the kind of angst which doesn't go away even with a 20% increase in money. I think, though, you're right. There are ways in which, um, you know, this is one measure, right? Like it's median income. It's it doesn't tell you about everything about like kids living in basements. I mean, that is a a change since late 2000. You just have more people like you said, 
you know, millennials living in their parents' basements. That is that is that's almost like a secular change at this point. Just more young adults don't move out of their homes. And for a variety of reasons, we're still figuring out a lot of which are just their sense of financial stability. And also that changes this wonderful thing called household size. If you're measuring household income and you have a minimum wage millennial as part of the household, then that makes then the income, the minimum wage income of that millennial only serves to provide an extra boost to the household yeah. income. And then they're, you know, they're maybe just, it's just, you know, uh, we're all just sharing more. Yeah, and there's maybe just a, that's what it is. I, I think that's why we're getting rich. <laughs> I, to some extent. Yeah. I mean, like you, you have to take that into account. You have to take into account, you know, the variability in people's incomes. How do people are people being fired more often? Or are they keeping their jobs longer? I mean, they're just are, are people, um, you know, what are people's feelings about the future? Does it seem like in 1999, it seemed like there was sort of like an unlimited horizon. Now it still feels like we're recovering Although, from what like, went wrong. One of the great, I mean, there are time series for a lot of these things. And yeah. one of my favorite time series is this thing called the quit rate. Yeah. And it's a great indicator of optimism across the country rather than just among your friends. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you measure how many people feel so confident in themselves and in the economy and in their ability to get a job that they feel free to just quit. Oh, my God, never. That would never happen to me. Yeah. Well, uh, the that's anxiety <laughs> that I would feel. I forget what year did you graduate? I was 2008. So. I was 2008. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, people who graduate that year are never going to be okay with that I'm idea. never I, quitting I, a job. Like, I've had the same job for five years. Yeah. I, and I'm a millennial. That, like, I will I. Quitting terrifies me. Qu- graduating into Lehman did that to a lot of people, but I forget where I actually haven't looked. But at the, the quit, quit rate, rate has gone up. Oh, ha- so, and yeah. and what that means is that you know, for all that you like, you know, two thousand eight vintage millennials might have a lower quit rate than some of the rest of the population. Even your quit rate is going up, statistically speaking. Oh, among, we are among starting your to feel ourselves. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, so you, you can't take like one. No, I'm trying not to laugh at feel of ourselves. So like, I, you can't take I one. I thought that was one of the phrases that made you feel so, uh, like squeamish. No, I never mentioned that. No, but can I share something? I actually have a theory that I'm just going to put out there. Yeah, sure. I think that the divide between the young millennials and the old millennials, you can tell but one thing. Yeah. Patience for Kanye West. Speaking of feeling yourself, yeah, old millennials, we don't do Kanye. We're That's tired of his bullshit. Uh, oh, I still do Kanye. Oh, get out of here. Anyway, so anyway. Back to, <laughs> back, speaking of confidence. Um, but wait, so yeah, I think the, the idea is like you can't look at one measure and say everything's great or everything is everything's roses or not. But there, I think you're right. There is this um, kind of collection of indicators that we have that things really are moving in the right direction. Um, and... You know, there's a lot of reason to think that 26, these data were for 2015. There's a lot of reason to think that there will be a similar story in 2016, which is nice just because you've had the same kind of environment with extremely low inflation, wages still rising. So I think there's there's a sense that, yeah, we could have more good news next year. Um, I don't know, guys. (laughs) All right. Lynette, Everything enough of your pessimism. Sad. We're going to move on to to Lynette Lopez pessimism in a completely different arena. We are. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Annette, 
What is the mega merger which you're pessimistic about this week? I'm not pessimistic about it, though I'm not sure it's going to actually happen. When you have to get 30 different governments to agree on something, it's like, oh, well, we might as well not even try. But apparently Monsanto and Bear are really, really jazzed about the idea of getting together and making the world seed daddy. And they have... <laughs> And they have a $2 billion breakup fee. If they don't get together, Bayer needs to pay Monsanto $2 billion. Yes, yes. That, Wait, is, so, that is a point. So we could talk about like how I think when – do most people realize like what Bayer is, right? Because most people think Bayer – or apparently – Aspirin, Yeah, right. they think aspirin. They think – but like they think Bayer – it's apparently pronounced Bayer – uh, correctly in German, I just Whatever, learned this. Germany. By, but they've been say that their executives have been saying Bayer in America, so they don't make us feel dumb. Like, so these are, so the thing which strikes me about this merger, and the reason why I wanted to talk about it, yeah. on on Slate Money, is that among, as I say, the um, you know a certain class of urban liberal, it is hard to come up with two companies which are more hated than. Monsanto, on the one hand... And any pharmaceutical company right now. Well, Monsanto in particular, because people have this obsession, irrational obsession, but obsession with genetically modified food, and they think that it's a horrible thing, and they they don't want it, and and they quite rightly associate Monsanto very closely with genetically modified food. Sure, absolutely. Sure. and then the other the other thing, of course, if you're if you're a good urban liberal, is that you associate Bayer with um, the company it used to be part of, which is called IG Farben, which created the um, Zyklon B gas, which killed all of the Jews in the Holocaust. Well, I, I, don't I think didn't that, know that. I don't think that's what the urban did, liberals are really hung up on that, these days. And I'm an urban liberal. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Let the me talk about that. That they, they yeah. produce now than it is than it is Zyklon B. But guys, what's really important here <laughs> is that we don't know what this company is going to be called. They, that's and that, true. And that is really fun. Like, what are we gonna? Are we gonna? Well, it could like, be a rebranding. Sea Jammers Incorporated. Are they going to basically do away with the toxic name? Monsanto. That, that's, yeah, you've got to do away with that. But this is now this is like a big scary company, and that's why it t- is going to require so much approval. And they're talking about potentially selling off assets for major commodities like soybeans, etc. Because like they got to bring this down. What, to one of my favorite um, like utter failures to communicate um, was in Davos one year. The Monsanto people were surprisingly talkative, mostly. The Monsanto people are not very talkative, and they don't do themselves any favors. By the way, they're constantly on, very defensive on the, and on the back foot, and, and they be... shouldn't wear cloaks to meetings. <laughs> That's also like but a big tell. I wore a cloak. Out, I'm kidding. I was hanging out with um, Dan Barber, who is the chef at Blue Hill, and Ooh, who is dude, a big, insane. who is a big like. Um, Anti Monsanto, he he believes that you don't want monocultures and you want to have lots of tasty locally grown food and this kind of thing. And he's kind of the opposite to what they think, but he is very rational and he doesn't scream at people. And it's possible to have a sensible debate with him. And so I spent most of the week just trying to sit down, either on or off the record, with the Monsanto person and Dan Barber, who was perfectly willing to do this, and just have a conversation. And it was impossible. And there's it was so like, they were both they would both talk to me individually, but not but that Monsanto Ugh. refused to be in the same so, room as and even isn't someone. This just a metaphor I, for our world. What, today. Can, I, can I talk about the antitrust concerns? Because I want to about those the, are what, real. Yeah. So here's what what's interesting about this deal is you have these you know. 
Bayer, Bayer, whatever you want to call it, is huge when it comes to pesticides. That's that's their, where they really are, have a stronghold in farming. And Although then, Monsanto makes Roundup, which they, is the does, other big one. But it's... That's not as big a part of Monsanto's business, which is really seeds. Like it was, we're talking about, you know, GMOs, you know, genetically modified seeds. And that's, that's their strong suit. And so these two companies want to come together and create this farming biotech monster. The interesting thing about it is that they don't actually have that much in common in their businesses. So theoretically, they, it shouldn't pose that many obvious antitrust concerns. The thing is, people freaking out. It's just that you're creating a monster in the end. You're creating this giant company at the same time that other companies in this field are starting to merge. For instance, DuPont and Dow merged and spun off their seeds. Um, they're, you know, part Can of their I just right, also we're seeing mention... a lot of consolidation and in so... the industry all around Wait, the world. Yes. Hang on. I, I want to I jump in here and say that pesticides yeah. and seeds are two sides of exactly the same coin. The, the yes. reason you buy a genetically modified seed, which is much, much, much more expensive than a normal seed is there's only one reason why you do that. And that is because you can, it works well with pesticides, basically, that you can spray a bunch of very effective pesticides all over your crops. And and the seeds are genetically modified, so that they just, they just shrug and say pesticide, pesticide, I'm going to grow. We got it. We got it. There, like, exactly. we got it. So if you have the same company making the pesticides and making the seeds, then that allows you to charge much more for the seeds. But because you wind up having to spend much less on, you know, well, exactly. So that's, that's other what... kind of farming. But the thing which has happened, yeah. and this is the reason why, the, the deep reason why there's so much consolidation in the industry is that we have we are in a deep and long bear market when it comes to agricultural commodities. Oh yeah, things like soybeans yeah. and corn are at multi-decade lows, and so people are much less inclined to pay through the nose for genetically modified seeds anymore because they're just not making money. Yeah. Right, a- and that, you know, uh, according to the deal, according to the deal, they're going to save about a billion and a half dollars over the next three years on synergies and all that stuff that bankers love to talk about with their charts and stuff. And, it, it, you know, this is a great deal for the bankers. They're going to make hundreds of millions of dollars, including this, like, small boutique bank that somehow made it onto the deal. Way to go, guys. Um, way, to, way to do it upright. And, and what's also impressive is this is an all-cash deal. Like, when do we see that on Wall Street? Well, when you have extremely low interest rates and companies can't think of anything well, that you I want mean, to so, invest in. So, but that, <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, all cash means yeah. borrowed money, big syndicated loans. Yeah, which I mean, I think you know, you can t- syndicated loans. Oh yeah, this is going to be like oh. we're going to have AB loans. We're going to have oh. bonds. Do you want, do, do, do you want to be so much Bayer debt out there? You have oh, no idea. God. Which I mean, given that companies in Germany right now are basically borrowing for nothing or less than nothing, is not. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if Bayer's on the list of German companies that are selling negative yields on their bonds, selling bonds at negative yields, but there are German companies that are putting out right. Which I, can, I'm just going to totally change the subject here and mention that the Bank of England, as part of its QE, yeah. is not just buying um, gilts, you know, British yeah. government yeah. debt. It's also buying bonds issued by corporations. Among those corporations are Apple and Verizon. And Apple and Verizon are now basically selling bonds straight to the Bank of England. <laughs> this is going to get so weird. I mean, I mean, the thing is, like, corporations can borrow. So, actually, this this is this is directly related, which is corporations can borrow for almost nothing at this point. Major corporations, big conglomerates especially. Um, 
And what do they do? You know, the idea is that hopefully they're going to take that and invest. But these companies like Bayer are saying, eh, we're not going to invest. We're just going to use this to do giant mergers. And so, you know, this is actually kind of a result of our monetary policy in some ways, too. And it kind of shows why our monetary policies around the world don't always work the way it's intended. No, and, and that's one of the – this is goes back to what I said earlier. It's like how – what is the unfor- unintended consequence of this? Can we look a few, you know, years down the road and, and think the most awful thing that could possibly happen from this? Well, I, I can't, but I do Because that's what I like. I, mean, well, I, I, feel, are, I feel like this – like you know, it's Godzilla, but yeah. <laughs> but but I think Jordan has a really good point that the thing which is genuinely tying all three of our disparate segments together is monetary policy and like just this these um, oceans of cash which are sloshing around the world. They're looking for somewhere to go, so they go into you know random. They, first, they go into Andreessen Horowitz, then they get invested into Point. Point wants to find a place to invest cash in an alternate asset class, which is housing. Bayer needs a reason to borrow billions of dollars because it can do it for free. And even some of it, finally, a little bit, is trickling down, down into the pockets of the middle people. class. That's a r- way to tie all this together. <laughs> Good for you, <laughs> Felix. I, I want to just uh, put a, kind of a, um, a coda on on the Bayer the Bayer uh, Monsanto merger, though, and your your skepticism about whether or not it'll happen. The re- the main reason why I think this deal is going to have a really hard time coming to fruition isn't even the Justice Department, which has been pretty skeptical about big, big mega mergers lately. It's the guy who runs the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. Um, that is Chuck Grassley. Oh, Chuck yes. Grassley is an ornery is old Kansas senator. Kansas or Nebraska? I can't Iowa. Iowa? He cares a lot Somewhere. about farmers. And he is a very smart, very aggressive guy who, if he thinks that this merger is going to create problems for his constituents, who are basically farmers, he is going to make hell. He is going to make a lot of noise. And already you're seeing guys like Mike Lee from Utah also sound off on this. I don't know. I mean, technically, the Senate isn't supposed to be able to stop these kinds of things, but they can really ramp up political pressure. And I wouldn't and also create space for the Justice Department to say, fuck no. And this is just such a sexy thing for people to hate. Like, this is just too easy. It's like it's really hard to find anyone who's going to come out and say, yay, Bayer and Monsanto are merging. What a great idea. Yeah, I mean, you would hope the one group that you think is maybe Senate Republicans would be in favor. But obviously, because of what it touches on already, they're kind of coming out. So it's they are so busy right now anyway. Anyway. And finally, we have a numbers round, as ever. <laughs> We've stumbled our way to it. We've stumbled our way into the numbers round. Um, I messed it. I messed up the numbers round again, guys. What did you? <sighs> I, that... did, I brought a number. You're just not going to like where it's from. Okay. What? Oh, oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. He ha- is it involving he who shall not be named? He who shall not be named. Can we just refer involved. to he who? Okay. So we're, Jordan's going to do his number. I'm going to do my number. And then you're going to come up with a number which does not involve Voldemort. Okay, fine. I'll do it. I'm going to find it. <laughs> he, okay. Uh, so my number is a little bit of uh, uh, a downer from that census report we were talking about before. It was sort of hidden. My number is 3.5. And that's the percentage of Americans who were pushed into poverty by medical expenses last year. And that's according to a sort of alternative measure called the supplemental poverty measure that takes into account things like also your post-tax and transfer income, yada, yada, and certain expenses. But the main thing to remember is about 3.5% of Americans who are pushed into poverty because of things like doctors, co-pays, drug costs, et cetera. Um, what's a little bit disturbing to me about this number 
is that it hasn't really been getting better in the Obamacare era. If you look back to a few years back before like 2013, 2012, it's about the same. It's not budging. So even though more people are getting insured and they're, they're getting on things like Medicaid, you still have this population that is getting literally pushed into impoverishment because of their health. And um, I don't know if Obama, Obamacare is not fixing that. I don't know what will at this point. Um, it, it's a little bit, you know, it, it's a little bit disturbing to me. I think one, one thing that's really interesting about what you're point, saying is that deductibles have gotten really, really high. They have, yeah. Under Obamacare. And I think that that has really exacerbated this problem. Deducti- because- yes, no, absolutely. High deductible plans are probably one of the things. Although, you know, so a lot of these people are sort of going to be on Medicaid. Lightning round. All right, all right. Lightning round. I'm giving her time to come up with something that's not Voldemort. I have, I have one now. <laughs> okay, okay. What's your number? It's $2.69, which is th- how much it costs to get a Burger King the new mac and cheetos or uh, no these are these are cheeto chicken fries oh which are our uh, good intrepid reporter uh, hollis johnson wrote about with lots of pictures these cartons look like angry birds wait wait so this is and they fries? go in your mouth but they're made with they're cheetos. chicken fries and they're dusted wait, what, with, what is a chicken fry i don't, I don't what, understand with, any of these words <laughs> stop you can't i can't hear myself think over your britishness okay <laughs> So it is. They've been they've been called dangerously cheesy. Um, What's they made of? It's a, it's chick, a it's, chicken. It's, it's a piece of chicken shaped like a French fry that's been fried in Cheeto dust, basically. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the expression on Felix's face, you're just going to have to imagine. Okay, two dollars and sixty nine cents. If you now. You know, $2.69, but think of your, how high deductibles are right now, guys. And, and so also, maybe and make also that for connection. the record, because this is slate money, we do need to mention that, according to Jordan Weissman, McDonald's is one of the greatest things that has happened to American capitalism I never, in I, oh, I, God, I never said Burger King was. <laughs> oh, wait, is that Burger King? That's Burger King. Oh, That's Bur- Burger yeah, King. I know, yeah, okay. McDonald's, not Burger King. All right, okay, my number is three. While the economic data people were cavelling over the census data the academy all of the economists out there were really only talking about one thing which was this paper which paul romer wrote called the trouble with macroeconomics and i can highly recommend if you like reading um you know fun economics polemics there are not very many of them and this is a good one Mm -hmm. and three is quote the number of decades of intellectual regress that he says that he has seen in the macroeconomic world. And he basically basically takes the entire macroeconomic world, every single macroeconomist out there, and says, you are talking complete and utter bullshit. And it came out just after Nariana Kochilakota, who's Slate Money's official favorite macroeconomist, said... um, said something very similar. He had a piece called The Puzzling Prevalence of Puzzles where he said something very similar. And so we are finally seeing a backlash against The Economist. And there was this famous question from the Queen of England um, when she came up to like a bunch of economists and she said, why did none of you see this happening? And and now finally The Economists are going, yeah, we have no idea. Can can we please have an episode where we just talk about DSGE models? Uh, No. No. Please. Shut up. Okay. But, you, but, but I think I think we have now officially <laughs> we have now officially reached the point at which there is a kind of consensus, a weird consensus among what you might call meta economists, the people who think about economics as a profession, 
the DSGE models and all of these other things that happen in universities are completely useless when it comes to actually describing planet Earth. W- one day we will try to have an episode where we talk no, about. We? No, we will. We will have an episode <laughs> where we talk about what real business cycle theory actually says. And you're not. You're going to think we're smoking weed. Like you're no, going yeah, in the, no, in the, bo- in no, the studio. This is not an economics podcast. We're <sighs> no, we're not anyway. doing you're gonna that. Have to, you're going to have to have your own podcast, Jordan, for that one. Or maybe you can join Magic Lazius on the weeds and talk about it. <sighs> I'll put in a request anyway. Okay. That is it. (laughs) That is it for us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Um, Do leave us reviews on the iTunes store if you can. Send us an email. Our email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Virilyn Williams, who produced and to the executive producers, Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers. Many, many particular thanks to Lynette Lopez for coming on and doing her awesome Lynette-ness. Thank you. And um, go check out all of the rest of the Panoply com- po- co- podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. And the subset, there's a particular subset of Panoply podcasts, which includes um, Slate Money, which are the Slate podcasts. And they are all free, ad-free, if you listen to Slate Plus, if you subscribe to Slate Plus. So for Slate's 20th anniversary, you can get 30% off an annual membership. That's $35 for a year of Slate Plus. You get, you get to listen to Slate Money without having to listen to me talk about beds and mattresses and things, if you, if you feel like that's an advantage. On the other hand, keep on listening to Slate Money. Do subscribe to us and enjoy the ads if you like them. That We'll talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.